these years you looked back on that day, drunk on the memory of its perfection. How shiny her lips, how instant your connection. Did it never occur to you that's why you were summoned in the first place? Designed to do nothing short of fall for her right then and there. All to make that single perfect specimen. That is, if you were designed love or mathematical precision. Yes. No. Hello, welcome to the Extra Credits Plus of Blade Runner 2049. This is one of the greatest dystopian epics of this century. Yeah. With a future so terrifying that not even Ryan Gosling can get a girlfriend. <laughs> he didn't really have the juice that Roy Batty had, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. I guess this is like our Valentine's Day movie because it's Valentine's yeah, Day week. It is. We're putting this out <laughs> over the weekend. And is this a good... Val- I feel like this is the saddest Valentine's yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely the most like dystopian Valentine's Day movie we could have picked, right? Yeah. We'll talk about like Joy and Ryan Gosling's character and love. relationship. Yeah. But we do still have Portrait of a Lady on Fire coming because we Very are soon. finishing up Celine Siama's movies to have a conversation about her filmography, which I'm so excited for. Uh, so yeah, that would have been better to drop Valentine's Day week, but this is just the the way it worked out. It'll still be in the the month of love that I, we drop. I can't wait for the Lady on Fire. I can't wait for the Siama conversation. She's like quickly become one of my favorite filmmakers to listen to talk. Yeah, about the world. Yeah. Uh, so we're starting off February with our first episode being a Villeneuve episode because it is. Denis Villeneuve's month on the show. Dune is coming out in the next few weeks. We have an early fan screening. So uh, excited. In like six or seven days. I'm very, very pumped for that. We're obviously huge fans of his work. For longtime listeners, you know from our deep dive on Prisoners, we explored his career, his underseen movies, the first half of his filmography, and how he's made like six of the best movies of the past decade, like five or six of the films of the best films of the past decade and how crazy that is. Honestly, Uh, he's in that kind of like handful of filmmakers who owned the 2010s going into the 2020s. Um, And he's just like, I think one of the most emotionally nuanced blockbuster filmmakers working today. Uh, So we're going to be starting off February with this three hour plus deep dive in 2049. This is one of the best science fiction movies ever made based off obviously Ridley Scott's 1982 Blade Runner. It's an extension of that film. It expands on the themes. That's a movie we just recently did did a really deep, deep dive on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that movie takes place in a postmodern society where a few humans play God. Consumerism is religion and all of the human experience or condition has been kind of reduced to constructs and commodified and human beings are capital to trade and slave labor is everywhere. Everybody seems to be replicants. It's a really uh, grim dystopia. And in Blade Runner 2049, it even gets worse. It seems technology has sort of evolved and also has regressed. But the human, uh, I guess, 
um, human equality has definitely regressed. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know it's dystopian, but I love that in 2049, they're like, yeah, like things just did not get better. No, it's all yeah. worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to ask you, starting off today's episode, which Blade Runner you now favor if you do oh, favor wow. one of them? Because I know you said on our Big I, questions. I usually don't right read, listen start. to our episodes unless I'm editing them, obviously. Uh, and I did re-listen to our Blade Runner episode and I was like, wow, this is a pretty thorough exploration of the Blade Runner universe. It's great. Uh, I know. I feel like we went on tangents of like what model of replicant. Like, yeah, we really were like lore building and I could just hear Ridley Scott counting his dollars. Uh, I guess that movie made no money, but on DVD sales, it, it has a lot. Uh, but what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. What do you which one of these do you find yourself coming back to now? Do you appreciate one more than the other? I like personally the scope of 2049 is so insane to me mm -hmm. that I always love coming back to this movie. It's so cinematic in the sound design and uh, just the engineering of the movie visually, sonically, it's incredibly singular to me and, uh, over the past 25 years. I think it is kind of a, a 2001 space odyssey groundbreaking tech moment. It is doing some navel gazing. It is very kind of pretentious at moments. And I understand that, uh, but there would, there wouldn't be the dune hype there is today if it wasn't for, how spectacular this movie looks mm. and the scale of it all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, do you find yourself coming back to one of these more now? Yeah, I think if you were to ask me before we did our Blade Runner 20 um, or 1982 version, the Ridley, Ridley Scott movie, mm -hmm. I would have said like 2049 is my favorite dystopian sci-fi movie. So like that automatically wins like the visual. Ever? Yeah. The, wow. the visual elements of the movie that you were just talking about, even though it's unfair to kind of compare them because the like actual people who are working on the movie are working with different technology <laughs> sure. um, yeah, in, in different areas, areas, eras, right. To make yeah. the, the film itself. So that's kind of unfair, even though Blade Runner, um, you know, 2019 or Ridley's version, um, you know, 82 version still looks spectacular. So yeah. like, I don't even know. Yes. Like Blade Runner 2049 looks amazing, but on 4k like i was just shocked to see how amazing the city looked um it's groundbreaking in, for in the 82 effects. version yeah but now i am a little bit more conflicted after we really deep dived the 82 movie because while i still think that 2049 is personally a better movie experience right mm -hmm. i'm more emotionally connected to the characters it feels like a more complete movie. Um, mm -hmm. There aren't as many pacing issues, although I know people disagree with me in 2049. Um, but the, the reason that I'm conflicted is because I still think 2049 is a movie that I would come back to and I, I would prefer to rewatch. And I think is maybe like a little bit better. Yeah. But now, you know, after kind of revisiting 82 for our conversation, it is right there for me. Yes. Uh, and I think the reason is, is that I, I talked about this on our, our other Blade Runner podcast, but I actually appreciate, especially on rewatching the movie that Ridley and the team that made the 82 Blade Runner, like kept us at a distance almost like it's, yeah. we're kind of looking at the world and looking at the concept and questions about class and inequality and what is a replicant and who is human and like asking those questions. Mm -hmm. And it feels more so like the audience is the, is the detective where it feels like in 2049, I'm watching detective Ryan Gosling go through the steps and I'm yes. emotionally connected to Ryan Gosling's character. So I actually appreciate the element of the audience being the detective 
kind of inspecting um, Harrison Ford's character yeah. because he's not someone who is a protagonist that I immediately emotionally attached to like Orion Gosling. Right. And, and so I appreciate it for that reason. And they're kind of like, you know, right. They're almost equal with 2049 tipping the scales a little bit um, to, to be more so my favorite. Um, you, you said something on the original Blade Runner episode that st- stuck with me still when I watch like any franchise now, which is that when different filmmakers play in the same IP, what kind of sensibilities do they bring to the screen while still keeping those like foundational themes and the aesthetic that people come back to that they love so deeply, whether it be the Star Wars universe, uh, you know, um, right now with Batman, like Matt Reeves verse and like how they change the formula a little bit. And you said that Ridley Scott brings a concept study to Blade Runner, whereas Denis Villeneuve brings a character study to Blade Runner 2049. And I think that's really... Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, well, <laughs> just of course, you really like that point from you? I said that. Good take. Uh, yeah. uh, and I really agree with that. I think that's what makes the movies feel like they're in the same world, but they're both distinct in their own ways thematically. And I think that they're both playing with those ideas about class and slavery in really interesting ways. I think 2049 does a good job of expanding on certain things like the gender commentary. And I think yeah. there's a lot more ambiguity Definitely. about the class commentary of the original Blade Runner. Both thing, both movies do something subversive, which is what you said, both Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard and then Ryan Gosling as K or Joe are not the protagonist. And they're both subversive hero journeys. When you realize at the end of the films that they're a play on both the hero journeys where Roy Batty is actually this, uh, this slave trying to be emancipated and trying to get more life because he has only four years to live. And he's killing the people who have worked on creating replicants. Like he's killing the eye makers. He's killing the toy makers. Right. He's killing, uh, you know, Tyrell, the head of the corporation who made him. Um, and it's really kind of tragic when you watch it from that perspective and then you watch 2049 again and you realize, oh, I might empathize most with like a character like love in this film, or you might be analyzing the way that joy is being used as this device, um, uh, by Wallace and his corporation. And that K is, uh, only believes his life matters when he is the protagonist of his life and how he's questioning, you know, he goes through this, like literally like this this uh this double hill of a journey where he like realizes he's a person and then also realizes that just because he's a person he doesn't need to be this like hero narrative yeah or fit he this doesn't hero need mythology. to be the, the jesus figure exactly he doesn't have to the be chosen this one messianic figure yeah. which is something that denis loves to come back to and that's why you know dune is going to be so fascinating to watch in part two um so yeah i think i'm right with you i admire the foundation that the original blade runner sets for how all sci-fi dystopias will look in the future I think obviously Dune as, you know, the Frank Herbert novels are very influential on the Star Wars universe, on Blade Runner, on Alien. But Denis really makes that uh, that cinematic world come alive and it gives the artistic license for, you know, future animes, for future sci-fi dystopias or graphic novels or video games. Like it really creates that aesthetic for so many movies. Um, There wouldn't be some of the best sci-fi films of the 21st century, like Children of Men is one of my favorite without the original Blade Runner, just kind of throwing those ideas in there about Mm -hmm. what is human, what is not, what does it mean to be human, um, and how corporatocracies exist, and how we should fear those things, and how people feel fear immortality, and how either we'll create or or we will create chaos if we can't get what we want, which is living longer. Um, So... Yeah, I think the movies are deep in substance and deep in ideas and concepts, which is hilarious because both filmmakers are criticized, 
you know, Ridley Scott and Denis Villeneuve for being emotionally hollow. Yeah. Like the style over substance argument. Right. And I just, I think we both deeply disagree with that. I actually As you're talking, I'm like, I'm so pumped to talk about Blade Runner. I know. Yeah. It's, it is a, like, of course the movies are very stylistic and I, I appreciate them for that reasons. They're so detailed. That was my, my extra credit from the Blade Runner 20. Um, I keep saying 20, 1990. Yeah. 2019. I'll just call it 82 Blade Runner. But I, the reason I like love that is I feel like that is the most realized dystopian world. And -hmm. of course that's going to be like a little bit more stylistic. And when we go to Tyrell's, you know, like penthouse (laughs) or, or like, you know, that, that is a part of the world that I appreciate, but I, as you're talking, like it is so much more complex. And the reason I love Blade Runner movies specifically is because it's not just like, Oh, Roy Batty is the antagonist or love is the antagonist, Mm -hmm. right? Like that is what we are supposed to see in terms of like how we understand and, and usually conventional stories narratives. Yeah. Yeah. But then we like look at Wallace and, and Tyrell and, and then also, you know, Wayland, if we're connecting Peter Wayland of Prometheus, Prometheus and alien universe. And, and it becomes like way more fascinating about, and way more grounded actually as a story in terms of the textual uh, and, and substance part of the movie. So like, I don't get that argument personally, although I can see like if people aren't, I, I do get the argument of not being into it in terms of pacing or yeah. having to, again, keep up with the lore of what is a replicant and, and the different yeah. models. Like I get all of that, but I don't get the argument of like no substance. Yeah, maybe people are just out on noirs too. You know, this is a very deeply masculine genre that can be boring. That's so focused on atmosphere building and both movies do struggle with pace. And I think we're 2049. I think where the original Blade Runner succeeds is actually it does have a subversive uh, feminist lens, like a conversation you can have. The movie is deeply not feminist, but we can talk about like on that episode, we talked about why certain choices were made when it came to Rick Deckard and Rachel that were purposeful in terms of subverting the expectations of the audience and how Deckard treated Rachel as a slave, as other, as lesser than, uh, then realizing by the end of the movie that he has been othered and he is what society views as lesser than, Mm -hmm. um, which has been, which was like a fascinating, like internal conflict he was going through. And this is similar in this movie with Kay and his relationship to joy. And we'll, we'll get to all of that. It's like a direct parallel of what was happening with Rachel and Harrison Ford's character with joy. Like it's far more clear and direct. So yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. And We'll definitely get into all of that. We'll also get into the hall of famer, Roger Deakins with incredible cinematography in this film the visual futurist Sid Mead who comes back from the original Blade Runner to create the world of Las Vegas in this movie, which is fascinating too. And then editor Joe Walker, who's won many Oscars or been nominated for many Oscars, does a great job in this film. Benjamin Walfish and Hans Zimmer working on the scores, the composers, the performances from Ryan Gosling in 2049 as the subversive K using the Hollywood star in this way to kind of manipulate the audience Harrison Ford's character and the evolution that we sort of like and also kind of we're out on a little bit at the end we'll get to that yeah uh, we're introduced to Ana de Armas for the first time Dave Bautista is fantastic in this movie Robin Wright Mackenzie Davis there's so much to talk about in this film and then most importantly to me I think the most underrated person I'm so excited to talk about today is Sylvia uh, Hooks as love and I believe yeah. it's Sylvia Hooks uh, but she is so iconic yeah. in this film. On rewatch, you're like, why do we not talk about this performance more when it comes to subversive villains in films? She's great. Yeah, um, her performance too is, I think you're right, like very underrated. 
you're completely captivated. I feel like I'm like holding my breath whenever she's doing anything. Oh my God. Bad dog. Like when she does that shit, I'm like, let's go. She's awesome. Yeah. How do you do that? Good. Oh, it's so good. And you really empathize with her when she's crying on rewatch. All that stuff is just, this movie does reward on rewatch. I have a lot of questions about like why she's crying in certain scenes. Me too. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna have a lot to talk about. Uh, As for the rest of Denis Villeneuve month after 2049 today, obviously we said we're going to do Celine Sciamma's portrait of a lady on fire. Um, And then our show will basically be dedicated to Dune for the rest of February and going into March because we're going to have a Dune deep dive. The first Dune on our Patreon and then we are going to do a Dune Part 2 uh, reaction slash deep dive very soon after we see it. I think we're going to be seeing it at the end of February, so it'll come around that around that time. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Kelsey, but Christopher Nolan recently called Dune Part 2 Denis Villeneuve's Empire Strikes Back. Does that mean anything to you? Uh, not, not really. really. No. But, uh, so <laughs> he basically I... <laughs> said Denis Villeneuve made one of the most important films ever made, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, everyone has their kind of like cultural uh, blind spot and Star Wars is one of mine. Like I've seen all the Star Wars movies. I'm just like, I think it's maybe like a aversion to people who are like, like, uber star wars fans in terms of you need to know every single piece of this lore and you know the fandom is to be a fan it's like you know just to like just to like get in to the room yeah and i don't and so i think i was like immediately like yeah like i'll I'll watch the movies i like the movies i appreciate them but i can't you know, it's, yeah, it's the same thing as Lord of the Rings. You can't be like, I'm a fan because then people will will assume things. Yeah, we're not super super fans about any franchise. I mean, we do have a few, I guess. But uh, if you don't know, Kels, it seems like you don't. Every critic, aside from like one or two that I saw online, like literally every critic, I can't even name names, like like 99% of critics who, who when the embargo dropped, talked about Doom Part 2, said it was one of the greatest technical achievements of the 21st century. They said the narrative was uh, expanded, expanded from the first. It is like maybe the best fantasy sci-fi blockbuster in either of those genres since maybe Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Empire Strikes Back. Some are saying it's better than The Dark Knight. Um, people, I saw this comparison a lot. People were saying that it's 2001, A Space Odyssey meets Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, so these are not like small comparisons. Yeah. <laughs> and I know the hype train is like total clickbait, even for critics, like just trying yeah. to get more followers and likes and retweets. And that's been disappointing when we've seen movies and I had really high expectations. Yeah. But we did see like five minutes of Dune part two at our IMAX uh, screening of the first Dune a few weeks ago. And we were both like, oh shit, this is going to be like James Cameron's aliens in response to really Scott's alien. Like it's going to be for the people who want w- a war film. Like, this mm-hmm. is going to be Apocalypse Now for Dune heads, I think. Yeah. Which is going to be exciting, obviously. And I'm excited on our Dune podcast. I guess, you know, we're going to do Dune what, part one on the Patreon, and then we'll do Dune part two on the, the main feed. But yeah. we, you know, weren't super fans of the first time we watched it. Mm-hmm. And when we rewatched Dune, like, it was just a completely different experience. Yeah. And I, and I think that's just because I didn't know anything about the movie the first time I watched it. So I was genuinely just... Confused so about what was going it was on. The and now lore, I was able to, yeah, yeah, it was now lore. I was able to like really appreciate in the second half of the movie, like, okay, this is the, just the small details that add to the thematic uh, pieces of the movie. It was number one lore that kept us at a distance. Number two, the emotional performances. I wasn't mm-hmm. as attached the first time around. I didn't really believe too much in the Oscar Isaac 
Timothy Chalamet relationship. Mm -hmm. And then the Chalamet relationship with Rebecca Ferguson was a little weird the first time we watched it. Um, On second watch, I was so invested. Like when Oscar Isaac cries, when he's, you know, I guess, spoiler alert, dying in the first Dune, Mm -hmm. I like legitimately got emotional. And I was like, how did that happen? Because the first time we watched it, I was like, why am I supposed to care about this? And I thought the first Dune was so focused on scope and atmosphere that it was all of my favorite technical parts of Denis Villeneuve, but he lost me in the character building, yeah. which was surprising coming from Villeneuve. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is sort of like my problems with 2049 the first time I saw it. But then when you come back to Dune, you're like, okay, this is like a, maybe a master class in filmmaking at every yeah. level. So I'm really excited for part two yeah. to see what happens in the story. And now I'm, I think, more thematically hooked in the in, and invested in Dune. Like, yeah. no big surprise. People absolutely love Dune as like a, a sure. story. Like so many people have read it. Trey and I have never read it. So we are really going in not knowing what's happening, which is kind of exciting. But it's famously been a very difficult thing to adapt. Like yeah. David, David Lynch struggled with it. Ridley Scott was I hired mean, to make the first Dune and enough, was like, I'd rather make, make Blade Runner. A worm seem cool. You know, like, yeah, worm honestly. Yeah. Well, like, I'm I, a big Tremors guy. I personally so. was just like, you know, uh, when I saw the worm, I was like, uh, I just, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I understand for people who are like dune heads, but for me, I was just like, I don't I don't get the, the worm thing. The worm riding, <laughs> like riding the worm. Yeah. I, like, I just think of SpongeBob. I think of like Sandy. Yeah, maybe that's why yeah, we're the SpongeBob like, okay. generation. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm but, more interested in like the geopolitical or like yeah. intergalactic political yeah. empire building and falling and all that stuff. Yeah. Which apparently is what Dune Part 2 is about. Anyways, well, really quick, though, when you were like describing, right, everything that critics are saying about Doom Part Two, I was like, that's Blade Runner 2049. That's not what me. I was going to say. That's, like, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like the sequel, like every every, you know, thing that you were using as far as like adjectives critics are using. Yeah. Is, like, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. But you know what I mean? Just I don't the world think, building. I uh, don't think the success of Dune exists without the scope and scale of Ridley Scott's Prometheus, which we both agree is one of the most underrated sci-fis of the 21st century. Yeah. And, and we the, know people disagree. But. And seriously, like we don't care. Yeah. Like, we just love that movie. <laughs> uh, and I don't think Blade Runner 2049 exists or sorry, I don't think Dune exists without the success of Denis playing with uh, the politics of how corporations are built yeah. like in 2049 and how people are uh, kind of disassociating from their impact on others like that that theme with Paul and the the Atreides family and all that stuff is really strong in the first Dune and I think uh, you know Denia only felt comfortable to do that because of his success well his cult success with 2049. It was a box office failure. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly. No, but that's so true because one. I think a lot of people are understandably and correctly talking about like Lord of the Rings and major uh, yeah. you know, fantasy franchises that like walked so Dune could run. But yeah. I actually do think you're you're totally right. The idea of like Ridley Scott's filmography actually being a huge influence uh, for Denis. And you can see that in absolutely. Blade Runner Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so speaking of Christopher Nolan, I mean, we're doing too much like pre-talk here. <laughs> we're not even into the movie yet. But did you see that he said his favorite film of the 2020s was... Did you hear this? No. Charlotte Wells' After Sun. Isn't that sick? I mean, he's standing up for British filmmakers and British independent cinema, Maybe which is cool. Maybe you had told me this, but I that is so shocking to me still. Like, I guess so. I mean, that movie's about memory and experiences. No, and, no. And I mean, it's not shocking that someone would love two. that movie. It's just shocking based off of the films that Christopher Nolan creates. That well, no, he, But his movies are about memory be, you know and what? experiences. Right. That makes sense. I guess it is kind of like a, a very grounded prestige. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, it's about time. 
You know what I mean? Not, oh, yeah, not about time to film. Yeah, like no, it it's is about, about time. time. Yeah. yeah, he loves time. You know what's interesting? Because uh, I know that Christopher Nolan just was like, he's a great complimenter. I think we've talked about this on pod. Very surprisingly. Before. Yeah. yeah, like really, you know, I thought you he don't was like see a recluse. A filmmakers coming out to like give sound bites for like they'll do the interview kind of like yeah. part of the press junket for films but like he he's a really uh big supporter of other filmmakers which is cool yeah publicly but something that is interesting is i think more people know christopher nolan's name than they know like denis villeneuve's name absolutely and I, obviously like i think that has a lot to do with like batman but i just think it's fascinating because christopher nolan like loves denis and they're since both we're each other's favorite filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> since we're talking about Blade Runner today, like people do know like Denise movies. They like people love Arrival. Right? Yeah. People. Uh, they, they There's a big yeah. Sicario group. You know what I mean? he Prisoners, I think, is probably his most famous movie because it's the most accessible. Do you think, though, that it is just like really the Batman? Like, oh, for why people love Chris? Yeah. Christopher Nolan. Uh, it's definitely Batman. Or know him, right? Like, I think the Dark Knight. Inception. Bro- I mean, the Dark Knight broke everything. It created the MCU. It broke the Oscars. They were like, we have to add 10 movies to Best Picture <laughs> because we should have nominated this film. Heath Ledger's performance, his tragic passing. Like, there's so much lore built into that. We get Christian Bale well, coming out. Well, he also out. is making more like blockbusters. Um, yeah. You know, like it, a lot of big movies that people really had fun talking about. Like, he was... He like hit like kind of like whatever the Twitter uh like film conversation was before no, you're it right. even happened. He was you like the I mean? Tumblr like, director. Everyone yeah, was like, like showing scenes the, from his movie. Is the top still spinning? Yes, in Inception. <laughs> the questions he he made the original. He made the 21st century Blade Runner with Inception. Like yeah. people, people were asking the ambiguity around Harrison Ford being a replicant or not was the same thing. Was is Leo like still in a dream within a That's dream? So the true. nesting of dreams. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. I mean, Denis Villeneuve's favorite movie from Nolan, I think, is Inception. So that kind of really? makes sense. Yeah, which is surprising because that's one of my least favorite. Yeah. Uh, all right, so <laughs> I feel like we might have to just jump into the movie. I wanted to talk about why we loved Denis so much. Obviously, we did a lot of that conversation in our Prisoners episode, so I guess I just recommend listeners uh, who have not heard that Prisoners episode, watch that movie again, go back, listen to that episode. If you're interested in hearing more about why we love this French-Canadian filmmaker who's made 10 of the most, I think, interesting movies of the past 25 years, even his first four films that are very indie, uh, or especially the first two or three that were very underseen, I think have uh, their own kind of qualities to them that are kind of singular and different than his later half of his filmography. Um, but what we talked about on that podcast is, was there a through line of what Denis does in his movies? And I think it's funny we're talking about Nolan and him because they get compared a lot because they're both very anti-establishment. And they also play with contradictory themes and they talk about men as like these, the duality of male consciousness as being a contradiction. And they're both fascinated by paradoxes. I, I think they are different though, because like Christopher Nolan is so fascinated by the scarcity of time. And then Denis Villeneuve is so interested in generational trauma and how trauma and the individual causes larger systemic problems and political problems. And I think he brings a meditative atmosphere that you might see in a Michael Mann movie with the thematic scope of a Ridley Scott. But then he brings this like surrealness of like an Ingmar Bergman or like a David Lynch to the vision of somebody like a Stanley Kubrick. These are all very big names, but this is what I think Denis so good at is he is obviously an encyclopedia as a filmmaker when it comes to cinema. 
so are you know the best filmmakers, obviously. But he does such a good job of blending all these different styles and sensibilities. But we tried to talk about, okay, what's his artistic mission as a through line through his filmography? And I really think it's like, he is interested, and in 2049, he's definitely interested in this movie. How does one person escape their past? And how does one disconnect from their upbringing or their environment? And, uh, and what they've been told in terms of the box they're supposed to fill. And I think he takes that universal human condition, question, struggle, that internal anxiety, and then he puts it into a major blockbuster. Yeah. You know, it's kind of similar to Christopher Nolan with time and people's fear of immortality or sorry, fear of their own mortality. So yeah. it seems like Ridley Scott, Villeneuve, Nolan, they're all playing with these, these human existentialist Feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I like the comparisons you made to like Michael Mann and maybe a, a, cause he, cause Denis is like different than Christopher Nolan, even though you're right, they do make like similar movies that they feel uh, similar. Even if you think of like arrival or like enemy specifically, but yeah. in enemy, you know, when we look at how Denis is framing men, right. Uh, it's his persona. It's just so different than something like, um, uh, like um, Christopher Nolan's first uh, movie. Oh, yes. I know what you're talking about. Memento. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. So like, because, you know, it feels like those are like kind of in conversation. Yes. But it, that's true. You can just see that Denis is more interested in this idea of like a character unlearning, like like you were talking about, a truth that they had believed their whole life. Yes. Where Nolan's interested in something a little bit different. So like, I think. Yes. And I think that Denis also like in Blade Runner 2049, we'll talk about today is not complete like it, it's it's not the same focus on masculinity and like Kay's character Ryan Gosling's character sure hi hello there sorry for interrupting <laughs> yeah thank you for listening so far and hopefully you are enjoying yeah <laughs> the episode so far I feel like maybe if you made it this far they got it this far they're yeah. having a good time I mean let's hope but to access our full conversation, you can go to the description of this episode to join our Patreon community, the Extra Credits Plus. Yes. And for only $5 a month, you can get access to our full catalog of Patreon exclusive episodes. Hope to see you there. <laughs> 